Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. Today, our guest is Hannah. Hannah has had quite the journey to a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, which impacts so many people and impacts the quality of life of so many people. Hannah's story is unique because as she just told me in the pre-show, her journey has been a winding road. (laughs) Right, Hannah? Yeah, definitely. And and winding sometimes means interesting and scenic, and winding sometimes means tortuous and unhelpful. And I have a feeling that is the version of winding you're talking about. Gladly. So, <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have you. You and I have been trying to do this interview for many, many months now, and I'm so glad that our schedules collided. So tell me about you, Hannah. How old are you? Uh, I'm 27 years old now. Um, I live in the suburbs and actually work in software, which is kind of ironic given my story. Uh, I guess I'll get into that later. (laughs) Nice. So um, you're 27, but your symptoms, your medical story started when you were how old? Uh, so I'm not entirely sure when symptoms first onset. I know that the all of the interactions with the doctors started when I was in middle school. So wow. It's yeah, it's been a while. I think I was diagnosed around 2018. So mm-hmm. I was I was in my 20s by the time I finally got my diagnosis. Wow. So more than a decade of symptoms, if I'm doing yep. my math right. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so tell me about your first recollection of sort of like, I don't feel good, like something's wrong. What's your first memory of that? So like I said, it's very difficult because every time I raised a concern, I was told that's just normal. That's growing pains or every kid goes through random stabbing pains in their feet, (laughs) whenever they're walking. Um, I think I was around 11 and I remember being in a car um, driving down Route 30. Like I can tell you exactly on Route 30 where it happened and just screaming out loud because I had this like really severe pain in my foot. And Mm. my mom nearly crashed the car, asked me what was going on. And I was just like, it's fine. It's nothing. Just keep going. Uh, Mm. And it just sort of that memory sticks out just because it was so severe that the next day I was like, maybe I should see someone because none of my friends scream from their normal growing pains. (laughs) But you're, you're, you know, you're a kid, like you're not really sure. You just know something was weird. And, you know, I imagine that most kids your age just want to move on. They want to get back to whatever it was they were doing and not worry about their random stabbing foot pain. But at some point, more symptoms like that happen, and eventually you have to see a doctor. Was it your pediatrician that you first saw? Uh, no. So this all uh, came to a head, actually, when I was, I know I was in middle school because it was around December, um, and I developed morphoscleroderma on my ribs. So went through the primary care and the dermatologist and finally ended up at a rheumatologist um, at this pediatric institute. And so she was treating me for the morphia, but each doctor that I'd seen, I sort of raised like, hey, my joints keep getting more and more painful. Like some days it's really difficult for me to bend my hand enough to hold a pencil. What's going on there? 
Mm-hmm. And every single one of them in that series told me, that's fine. That's just growing pains. It's totally normal. Basically, go home and deal with it. Um, wow. So yeah. tell me, uh, well, I was going to say, tell our listeners what morphia scleroderma is, but that would be disingenuous because I don't know what morphia scleroderma <laughs> is. So can you tell me about that? Yeah. So for me, it at the time when it first onset, it was really no big deal. Um, it's just a patch of discolored skin on my ribs at, at that point. So it just looked kind of like a bruise, but it didn't hurt. So it really was no big deal. They they sent me home with hydroxychloroquine and I just treated that like vitamins and went on about my day. Um, wow. So hydroxychloroquine by mouth? Yep. Yeah. I had two uh, pills of hydroxychloroquine every day from middle school uh, through to the middle of 2020 when uh, I developed macular decay from it. So it started damaging my eyes uh, and had to come off. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> so here goes, here's a giant, you know, pin turn in your winding road. So you have this skin condition. It's arguably no big deal, but it's obviously some kind of big deal because you go on hydroxychloroquine, which has gotten a lot of press in the last, you know, three years because its brand name is Plaquenil, um, which as an aside does not cure COVID, but um, (laughs) you end up 2020 was fun with that prescription. (laughs) (laughs) People were like hoarding this stuff. Oh my God. So, so your pediatric rheumatologist prescribes this Mm-hmm. And in your mind, you're like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to take for this morphia scleroderma and you move on. Right. But along that way, you're having problems with your hands and holding a pencil. Yeah. Yeah. I, I vividly remember um, every night I would dread bedtime because I would have mm-hmm. nothing to distract me from how much pain there was. So I kept like making up stories in my head to explain it. Like maybe I fell down and just forgot about it. Or maybe I ran into a door and like forgot. And that's why my arm hurts so bad. Uh, It was just like this constant, almost ever increasing pain that I was going through that I told myself, well, everyone deals with this. You're just being weak. Like Mm. that's the phrase I've used my whole life is just when you feel pain, you're weak about it. Like it's not something you should make a big deal out of. So were your parents observing this or were you just really kind of keeping it to yourself? No, my mom was, um, cause I told her and she pretty much was the only person that ever believed me when I mm. talked about it. So she was very much my guardian angel in that respect. Like she would try and over the next 10 years, she would take me to doctor after doctor, like trying to convince them, look, something is wrong with my kid. She doesn't lie. She doesn't make this up. Mm. Um, like there was one point in the process that a doctor didn't even bother giving me a uh, blood test. Cause like, we went, told her all my symptoms, told her how much pain I was in. I, t- I, at the time I thought of it as a mistake. I told her that I was nauseous all the time. Um, she looked at my BMI was like, well, you're overweight, so you can't be nauseous. So you must be lying. Uh, oh, she my. instead told my mother to put me on antidepressants and stop enabling my attention-seeking behavior. Uh, (laughs) I like, when I was thinking back on that, I was going, oh my God, if mom had listened to that doctor and actually believed that doctor, like 
I don't know what my life would be right now because no one would believe me after that. Oh my so, God. Yeah, my my mom was the, definitely paying attention to this. And I, I'm so thankful that I had her to fight my corner for that. And, you know, I, I guess we'll get back to this, but, you know, you happen to be a kid. And when you're a kid, you have most kids are fortunate enough to have at least one parent who advocates for them. But I talk to a lot of adults that are in kind of similar situations who have to advocate for themselves and are met with very similar, like asinine commentary from <laughs> doctors. And yeah. they just, but they don't have like their big bad mom, you know, in the background saying, oh, hell no, this is not right. <laughs> so you, so that one doctor obviously like completely misses the mark. And obviously this was many years ago and still it resonates with you because you're still talking about, you know, that conversation and how it made you feel. Mm -hmm. So when you, I know your mom was like, no, no, this is not right. When you left that doctor as a, what, 12, 13 year old, how did you feel? Uh, yeah, I, so it was that doctor and several others as well, because um, over the course, I would end up at orthopedic specialists, neurologists, pain specialists, and every single one of them would run a couple tests, not find anything, give up and tell me it's normal, move on. Uh, so yeah, I, I felt, I honestly, I hated myself. Like I just mm. blamed myself for it Aww. that I remember starting college and thinking like, this is just my subconscious trying to get attention. This is all in my head. Uh, and honestly, I, I fight that to this day. Um, so I told you, I recently tore my ACL and had re the repair surgery in April. And I still remember this evening after the surgery when I was, um, my boyfriend was looking after me and I was like crying going, I'm so sorry. I'm so weak. Like, I know it shouldn't hurt this bad. Like I'm making this up. Wow. And he had to like interrupt me and go, dude, you tore a ligament in your knee. Someone cut into your knee and drilled a new ligament in place. That's supposed to hurt. That would hurt normal people. You're fine. <laughs> right. But, like, part of me just is convinced that any pain I feel isn't real and that oh. it's my fault. Like still. Wow. So, oh my God. So <laughs> I think this is, you're the first, I almost called you a kid, but you're the first <laughs> young adult who, you know, I'm talking to who, whose journey started when they were young enough for, to have better, bad medical conversations impact them for the course of their life. And that's clearly what happened to you. I mean, and now maybe instead of your mom or in addition to your mom, you have your boyfriend trying to knock some sense into your head. Like <laughs> this is not you, but we have definitely bad doctors have definitely developed this pattern of behavior that blames patients. And so then patients learn to blame themselves and they spend their entire life apologizing for being in pain, being sick, being unwell. And that, that's unacceptable. We're in the business of doing the opposite. So, so you go through a series of doctors. It starts with the, uh, we'll call her, was it a her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll call her the, the nausea, overweight, it's in your head doctor. And then you go to a series of other doctors and you're met with very similar things. All the while you're having ongoing pain. Was it mostly in your hands or did you have pain in your feet too? Yeah, so it was, um, I think the most common refrain for me at the time was ankle, knees, um, hands or wrists and my back. Like wow. no joint was safe. Any 
previous injury site would also be a problem for me. But the hands and the knees were the most problematic because I couldn't write with a pencil a lot of days and the knees made it very difficult to walk. Um, at, At the same time, I had this weird thing where if I ran or walked too far, I would get stress fractures in my tibias. And that's <laughs> wow. to this day that's never been explained. Like I still don't know why that happens. So I, I still have a disabled parking pass out of fear that if I walk too far, my legs will break. Oh my word. So somewhere along and you're on the the hydroxychloroquine for the morphia, but somewhere along the road, there's a pivot where you just need better answers. And it comes how many years into this? So you go through middle school, you go through high school. When do you ultimately connect with a doctor that pays attention to you? Um, so I think the the final diagnosis was 2016 for celiac. So still don't have arthritis, the arthritis diagnosis yet. But uh, this was my mother had given up on specialists. She just decided, you know what, specialists are only going to Look, I think the phrase, if you only have a hammer, all you see is a nail. That's kind of where (laughs) I felt. I had this neurologist who like tested me for absolutely everything except for anything involving the immune system. Uh, And bear in mind, I had an autoimmune condition at the time. So that's right. Like a good avenue. Right. (laughs) Um, So my mother like sat me down and I was in college at this point and like, I hated her for this. I told her like, stop trying to give me hope. The only thing hope ever does is hurt me this is stupid. I hate you. Um, but she like put up with my abuse and made me write down every single symptom in a timeline. Like what month, what year did this first start? Um, and then categorize it by like area. So here's neurology, here's ortho. Um, and we went to this new primary care doctor and like, I still remember handing over this massive packet of information mm-hmm. and just begging her to just review this with an open mind and just say any random idea that comes to her head. And she said, I'm going to test you for celiac disease, mm-hmm. which uh, was a simple blood test, like one very quick blood test. I got the results pretty much the next day. And it said, like, yes, you have celiac disease. So when I eat gluten, uh, my body attacks it and then moves on to attack itself. Mm -hmm. For most people, it's GI, so it can cause nausea. And then Mm -hmm. mine moves on to attack my nervous system, so migraines, fibromyalgia, pain. And it can also then trigger the joint issues I was having. It was really funny. I got this phone call and I told all my friends like, hey, I've just been diagnosed with celiac disease. I can never, ever eat gluten again the rest of my life. And everyone was apologizing to me. And I was just giggling for like a month straight because it's like eight years. You had an answer. And it's like, I have a chance to be healthy. I have a chance to be like a healthy person. Um, So, yeah, that was the very first time I ever felt believed because I had this blood test that was like, my shield from all of these accusations. Um, So she sent me to GI, who again was just like, yeah, the pain you're feeling is real and treatable. Let's treat this. Uh, But it didn't really get rid of the joint pain. It helped with about half of my symptoms, but Mm -hmm. didn't really help with the joints. So about a year later, she was like, we should be seeing something by now. I've got a friend in rheumatology who I trust. So you're going to go and see her. And so like after that, I pretty much pick a specialist based on my other specialists recommending them. Uh, so Smart. she sent me to this neurologist, um, rheumatologist, who did a bunch of tests and everything was still coming back 
clean. Uh, you know, the morphia was pretty much dormant, under control. My legs hadn't broken in about three years, mostly because I hadn't walked or run that far in three years. Like everything looked fine. But she asked me to give her every joint of mine that hurt and ultrasounded them and did a, a Vectra blood test, which measures like hormone levels as well. And those finally came back uh, showing inflammation and showing that there were issues going on. Uh, so that was when I got the diagnosis. I have seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. So it's the, the blood tests that typically diagnose rheumatoid arthritis were coming back clean for me. So mm-hmm. it was just like this stubborn thing hiding in the background, still damaging my joints. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know what I would do without my, without my team right now, but they've definitely helped me live an almost normal life. <laughs> so there's, there's so many parts of your story that are just critical for patients and those of us practicing medicine. I, I want to talk about the zero negative piece for a second, mm-hmm. because, you know, there was a time, and I think I've talked about this a lot on this podcast before, but there was a time when doctors did not have any tests whatsoever. There was no blood test. There was no CAT scan. There was no x-ray. There was no nothing. There was basically the patient, their hands, their ears, their eyes, and doctors made diagnoses without the assistance of these ancillary tests. And I'm not saying that was better medicine back then, but I would say there was less reliance on Mm -hmm. medical testing back then. And people use their clinical skills and their history taking skills and their instincts a lot to the good of patients a lot more, I should say. So in your case, you had like, if we're making a spreadsheet, you have this massive spreadsheet of symptoms. A lot of them, many of them are autoimmune. And I think you were getting at this before, you know, if you have one autoimmune condition, you are much more likely to have other autoimmune (laughs) conditions, right? So you have arguably two autoimmune conditions now, the morphia and the celiac. Um, But this one, you know, negative blood test could have stymied tons of doctors, primary care doctors, rheumatologists, if if the test is negative, you don't have it, period. But it takes this astute doctor to set aside the negative rheumatoid factor test and do a few other things and ultimately give you the correct diagnosis. So were you on the Plaquenil still at this time? Yep. Yeah, I was on Plaquenil for the full 10 years. Wow. So that's so interesting because for a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis, I think, and I'm not a rheumatologist, but I think um, Plaquenil is like the first line treatment. So you should have been doing okay in terms of your rheumatoid arthritis, but you weren't. Yeah, actually how I found the medication that works for me is a kind of a crazy story in itself. Yeah, please. Um, Because we tried a number of different things for the RA and I do have fibromyalgia, which complicates it because it's like, okay, which one is causing this pain and which one's causing that pain? So I went through the standard um, Plaquenol and Methotrexate and all of those. We kept increasing the dose of methotrexate up and up and up. Um, And then in January 21, I believe, I suddenly developed asthma. Like one day I had it and the next day I didn't. So that was a a very interesting diagnosis too, because it took us about a month of me not breathing uh, to figure out like, okay, let's just treat with albuterol and it'll be okay. Um, So I went through that and then I did a couple biologics, including Humira um, and Dupixent for the asthma. So I was on both for a while. 
my sister-in-law is a pharmacist uh, and she just loves to look into rheumatology and everything. So I'll sit down and just tell her all my symptoms just on a free afternoon. Um, so she spent her honeymoon looking into every autoimmune condition I'd ever had. Because I had wow. some come up like uh, erythema nodosum that would come up and go away and, and be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she found very small but anecdotal evidence of IL-6 mm-hmm. causing each one of those conditions in different people and a biologic that would treat that. And at the time, Humira was sort of slowly fading and not working for me anymore. So I went to my rheumatologist and I was like, look, I did the thing, I did the Googling, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but like, do you think this theory has merit? We, I have to change anyway, could we give this a go? Uh, so she like, he was going, you know, if your sister-in-law ever wants a job, send her my letter. Because we gave it a go and it was like, I measure my arthritis by what finger my ring fits on. And I couldn't even get my ring onto my pinky finger on Wednesday. I did the injection and on Thursday it went onto my thumb. Like wow. it's, it's been insane just how effective this new treatment is uh, just because of this research she was doing on her honeymoon. So, so IL-6 is interleukin-6. So that's the mediator of many of your autoimmune conditions. Um, and then, so you went on an interleukin six blocker. What's the medicine? It's Kevzara. I got mm-hmm. it. I, I have to ask my sister-in-law to explain it all to me. Uh, I, I just know I inject myself once a week and I get to be a normal person. Like I, oh I do crazy things like going skiing and tearing, <laughs> but it's like, I'm healthy enough to actually go and do those things, which is you're healthy enough to earn an injury. <laughs> That's amazing. So do you think, I mean, you had your mom who advocated for you. You had a primary care doctor who finally listened to you. You have a sister-in-law who happens to be a pharmacist and <laughs> happens to take an interest and also happens to like you, right? So if your sister-in-law <laughs> didn't like you, she would not have helped you, right? So, but there's so many people who don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, and I also think the doctor, your doctor now, I, I suppose, who said, yeah, let's give it a try. I mean, that's a very open-minded doctor. The ego gets in the way, right? Where you're like, your yeah. sister-in-law is not a doctor. I am not making a decision based on this. Um, do you think, what What do you think made this, your current doctor believe you and give this treatment a try? Do you think it was the relationship she had with you? Or do you think it was just, she's just that kind of doctor, which honestly, if that's what it is, we need more of that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I do have a great relationship with her. Um, We never thought I would ever be able to even date. So like the second I actually met someone, she was one of the first people I told her. I was like, look, I can do this now. Um, But I do genuinely believe she's just one of those types of doctors because of like her willingness to say, okay, the blood test says you don't have arthritis, but I don't believe the blood test. I believe you. Let's go get these scans, get these other tests and see what works. Mm -hmm. Um, so even from when I first met her, she was always like, okay, conventionally, I should be telling you what all 50 other doctors you've seen have told you and deal with the pain and get out of here, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to listen to you and give it a go. Uh, it helps that the treatment my sister-in-law came up with was one she uses on other patients. So Mm -hmm. she knows it works for RA. 
and we were ha- making the choice of okay which of this group of biologics should we choose we just picked that one from that list based on that recommendation like mm-hmm. I think if I'd said let's treat our RA with ivermectin she'd have laughed me out the room <laughs> right <laughs> right good point but that's that's a very good point so you know it's not like she was a doormat because there are some doctors like that who We'll say like, what do you want me to prescribe? You know, oh, just yeah. tell me what you want and goodbye. That would be a disaster. I should not make that decision. <laughs> exactly. I feel like most patients, even doctors who are patients, should not be deciding those things for themselves. So that is a very uh, nuanced circumstance where, you know, you take feedback, but you also use your expertise and clinical skills. And there's a line where you're like, yeah, no, that's not going to be what we use for you. I don't care who your sister-in-law is. Um, so obviously this particular doctor had and continues to have a very, you know, impactful presence in your life, in your day-to-day life. Right. Um, Tell me about other things you do now, because I remember when we first spoke many months ago, you were training for a triathlon or something like that. Yeah, that uh, that took a bit of a pause when I tore my ACL. But oh. yeah, that that's something that I uh, started doing when I was still figuring out what what treatment would work for the RA. So I could basically swim and I could definitely cycle. I absolutely could not run. So I would right. like power as hard as I could through those two and then just walk the run stage. Mm. Uh, the Kevzara has made me feel so good and confident that maybe I can run without fracturing my legs, that it's something I'd started to train up to and like figure out, okay, I want to take this slow. So I did chat with my doctors first, like, what would you recommend? So started building up the strength in my ankles and my muscle, like shock absorbing muscles before even trying to jog lightly. I'd gotten to the point before doing my ACL in that I could jog a little and not feel the pain that I'd been so used to. Um, so it's something that I'm actually getting back into. I just just reinflated the tires on my bike yesterday. So I'm going to be starting oh, up again this afternoon. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that you are not someone who wanted to be um, strapped to your chair. You are someone who very much wants to go out and do things and live your life. And you finally have the opportunity to do that, but things are not perfect, right? You're still obviously on medicine. You still have pain. The healing from your ACL is probably a little slow. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I still, I uh, started up yoga last year because I found if I don't regularly stretch my joints, even with Kevzara, they're going to stiffen up and get painful. Um, actually just talking right now, my, the muscles in my neck are like starting to tighten. Um, so I do have to be very careful with my joints and to keep them warm. And, and I do unfortunately deal with flares. Um, the celiac disease means that a couple weeks ago, I think I had some gluten, um, a very small amount, like as cross-contamination, but it did wipe me out for a couple of days, um, mm. which then, then it's like, okay, you know, you're sick, you've got stomach issues, you've got your nervous system going haywire, you just want to lie in bed under a warm blanket and not do anything. I don't have that luxury. When I'm sick, I still have to keep moving my joints. Otherwise, mm. the recovery is going to be harder. So right. I have to admit, I get jealous of people that are like, I'm just going to rest today. I'm not going to do anything. I'm like, no, I, I can't do that. 
Wow. So that so yeah, it's like multiple layers, right? If you if you get the flu, it's not just the flu for you. If you lay low for too long, then your RA kicks in and your joints are stiff and then you're just miserable. So how I mean, it would be very easy to get, I imagine, to get kind of depressed and, you know, just low about all of these things and the feedback you'd gotten from doctors. Did you go through that? Did you have periods of, you obviously had self-doubt and you started to blame yourself, but would you say you got depressed? Yeah. So I, I was talking with my mother yesterday because I'm traveling to Japan in a in a few months with some friends. And it's like wow. this past year, I've been doing all of this stuff, traveling, trying crazy foods that are gluten free and I've probably made myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like I'm trying to make up for my college experience mm-hmm. because I didn't I didn't get one. You know, I couldn't mm-hmm. function in the evenings in college. I couldn't do social clubs or sports or any of the things people do in college, I just hobbled Mm -hmm. to class and back again. Um, So there's definitely, when I was in college, there was a lot of depression in that. And then sometimes I feel I'm always that like normal people's base is up here when you've not got anything going on, you're kind of neutral. My base is a little lower just because if I've not got anything going on, I'm still in pain. Um, So so there was a certain amount of that. one thing I did when I moved into my own apartment, because I was healthy enough to not need my parents, mm-hmm. was I took every cool thing that I had done while being sick. So specifically, it had to be while I was sick and in pain, got a picture of it um, and put it up on my wall. And so now nice. whenever, like it's getting me down and I'm thinking, you know, all this stuff is wrong with me. I can't do anything or whatever. Um, I can just look at that wall and be like, actually, I still did this cool stuff. I still did this triathlon or took this trip to Italy while being this sick. So yeah. it's like, if I could do all of that while feeling that bad, what excuse do I have today? Like things are pretty good. Um, How amazing. That, <laughs> that is so inspiring. Wow. Well, I'm so relieved for you Anna, that you finally got a diagnosis and this happens all the time where like nobody really wants to be told they have a disease especially a chronic incurable disease where you know we didn't really talk about this but it's awesome that you found medication that works for you but that's not easy medicine to take either that stuff wipes out your immune system like if you get an infectious disease like you you could be in real trouble i mean it's a loaded diagnosis to be straddled with at 28 years old, and you're handling it with just tremendous grace. Um, So if you had to, I'm going to ask you kind of a two-part question. So if you were going to give patients a piece of advice uh, about navigating the autoimmune minefield of diagnoses, what would your advice be? Yeah, I would say that especially if you're thinking it might be autoimmune, like you don't you don't know what is an important symptom. Like I did not think that the nausea I felt was that that big of a symptom, but it's what led me to celiac and finally led me to RA was this one tiny um, thing that I would otherwise have ignored because it it wasn't as bad. So what my mother kind of forced me to do in college of writing down the timeline of what do you feel when. And I spent like three weeks on this because I lived so long with so many of these that 
I forgot they were a thing. You know, I mm. thought, yeah, most people have their knees stiffen up so much they can't walk. Like that's normal. Um, so just taking that time to take a step back and write everything down and give that timeline so that you can then take this to a doctor who does know what's important was incredibly useful for me. Uh, but then also, honestly, taking it to my primary care, when we mm. got out of that sort of whirlwind of specialists who were all looking only in their tiny field and actually talked to someone who was willing to stop and look at the bigger picture, mm. that really made the difference for me. Like if I'd stayed only with the neurologist to treat my nerve pain, I would never have found out that eating gluten was what was causing my problems. Wow. So as a primary care doctor, I'm literally <laughs> doing like, I'm jumping up and down in my seat right now because I'm so proud. That is so true. I mean, it is our job as primary care doctors, not just to advocate for our patients, but to look at the big picture. You know, we need to see the entire toolbox, not just the hammer and nail, right? So, yeah. um, but you know, the flip side is some primary care doctors are busy and tired. And the last thing they want is to see, you know, a 10 page document full of <laughs> a decade of symptoms listed out. Like I could just see, you know, you have 20 minutes with a patient and this young person walks in and hands you this thing. You're like, Oh my God, I can't <laughs> even. So kudos to your doctor for taking the time. And this is an aside, I wasn't going to ask you this, but I'm just really curious. Did your primary care doctor, when you showed up with this document that took you weeks to write, right? Did she look at it right then and there? Or was she like, hey, you know, let me take some time and then let's get back together and talk about it. Yeah. So um, I will say there is a two page summary at the top now that I have. <laughs> every time I see a new doctor, I'm like, just read this before we talk. It's got current team. So the list of all my specialists, current medications, current diagnoses. And because I'm like, those are the things you need to know who to talk to, what I'm taking, what I what we know I have. Um, so it is shorter now, but I do keep this like appendix. It's got every scan and like my blood tests through the ages on charts. It's it's wow. ridiculous. But no, I I've had enough doctors that I give them my history and they turn and quickly Google morphia scleroderma because it's so mm -hmm. weird. Mm -hmm. And kudos to the doctors that were brave enough to tell me they had no idea what this super rare autoimmune condition was. Yeah, yeah. But so we gave it to the nurse taking my blood pressure and we're just like, hey, could you give this to her? Like slip it under the table before she comes in so she's prepped. But no, she she read it there and said like, I might call with questions and follow up. But she did read it um, very quickly and go, let's test for celiac and then I'll read further later. Wow. Um, so yeah, like, so like that's yeah, awesome. yeah, that's <laughs> basically like a combination of like, you know, it doesn't have to be like, okay, let me just sit down and carefully read line by line and go through this with a fine tooth comb right at this visit. And it also doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have any time for this kind of stuff. It can be like, let me get as much information as I can from you in the time we have, but also take this back and spend a little time when I have it to read through things. I find it for me, it is a lot of pressure to try to read through a bunch of medical records right at the time of a visit with a patient because our time is so limited. And then, you know, you have another patient after you and you don't want to keep people waiting. So I do two things. One is 
I try to get as much of that information way ahead of time as possible. So if I see a new patient on my schedule and it looks like they have, you know, a super complex history, I will try to gather all of that data. And from the patients who are smart enough to have it written out, it's super helpful. I'd get it ahead. Or I am not ashamed to say to people, listen, I'm a really slow reader. Uh, I'm going to need a couple hours. So let me take this back and get back to you. And I really enjoy, and this sounds so nerdy, I enjoy like in the evening after my work is done, taking, you know, a report like yours and just putting my readers on and just really reading it almost like I'm reading a mystery novel, like (laughs) digging into it and like figuring out like where all of these, you know, twists and turns happen. And I, I feel like I retain a lot more information as a physician when I do that. If I try to read it with the eye of, I have 10 minutes to get this patient in and out of my office, I don't get nearly as much. So I love the idea of you as the patient, put it together, offer it to your doctor. And then it depends on the doctor, right? Some are going to go after it right then. Some are going to ask you questions after, but as long as they read it, I think that's the most important thing. Um, And then the second follow-up question is for healthcare providers. I mean, obviously you're not a doctor, but um, in your experience with doctors, if there was just one piece of very simple advice you would give to someone who has a patient before them who has a litany of seemingly unrelated complaints that they need to sort through, what would you tell them the biggest don't do is? Don't do X. What would that be? Yeah, I definitely say don't tell them it's normal. Like just because you can't prove the cause of something doesn't mean it's something that I should just have to take back. One thing that stuck with me was when I was in um, high school, the morphia scleroderma I had mutated. Um, so it became morphia profunda or profound morphia, which means it stopped being at that superficial layer of skin and went underneath and started attacking my connective tissue. Oh. On paper, on textbook, this condition that affects 0.03% of the population does not cause pain. The reason I bring up the 0.03% is you can't tell me that you are 100% certain that it never does this. Uh, And I went to a doctor at the time who didn't know all of my other medical history because I was going, I was like, look, I had a kidney stone the year before from a medication the neurologist put me on. So I was like, look, can you check if it's that? Can you find out why my side is so painful? And she, she just told me like, look, Everyone has something that they've got to deal with. No one's 100% normal. This is probably just one of those things. And so I then spent the next three years getting an epidural every three months because the pain was not bad until I finally saw a new morphia specialist who was like, yeah, put this cream on it. And in a month, you won't feel any pain. And it was like that doctor, it just stuck with me. No one's normal. Everyone's got this one thing. Because she ran two tests, found I didn't have a kidney stone or a UTI, and therefore it couldn't possibly ever be diagnosed because it was outside of her specialty. Mm. So just just don't say that. If you don't know the cause, (laughs) don't tell the patient. Just deal with it. You're going to have this for life. Right. Maybe just send them to a different doctor. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm just speechless at that. And so that's the obvious don't do. Don't tell someone, well, 
you know, this is your lot in life. Just get used to it at 20 something years old. This is what you're going to live with forever. <laughs> Don't do that. What about the dues? What would you say the most helpful thing any doctor did for you was? I mean, beyond just sort of listening, I think I can tell you um exactly what I was wearing every time I had a doctor say the words, okay, your pain is real. Let's treat this. The most recent being that Morpheus, that scleroderma doctor who was like, okay, your pain is real. On paper, this should not be happening, but I believe you when you tell me your pain is real. Let's treat this. Like I actually was crying in happiness when I went home because he said that. And that was like two years ago, I think. So I already had my RA treatment, but it was still Mm. that meaningful to me. Wow. Uh, And and when they just say that and take that moment to be like, look, you've probably seen a ton of specialists. You're probably expecting me to call you a liar and send you home. I'm not going to do that. It's real. Let's find the cause. And the follow-up to that being, if you can't find the cause, acknowledge that. My Mm. rheumatologist is great because if I show her something and she doesn't know, she's like, all right, I think this might be in that specialty. Let me send you to someone who works in that specialty. Mm. Uh, And she's totally fine admitting, yeah, sometimes I don't know what's causing something. That doesn't mean it's not real. Let me give you someone who might know what's causing it. I think that your episode is going to be called, I Believe You. Because, (laughs) I mean, to me, I think that is the the quintessential bit of your story is to get such relief from a doctor just saying to you, I believe you, those three simple words. I mean, and honestly, sometimes we do believe you, we just don't say it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I think just saying those words and, and validating a patient's uh, symptoms or troubles or fears or whatever the thing is can be the most helpful thing of all. And you know, I'm thinking back, I can't remember the last time I said those three words to a patient, I'm ashamed to say, and I'm going to put it on the top of my list now, because I don't know, I feel like sometimes we're like, oh, it's implied, you know, I'm listening to you, I'm ordering tests, I'm prescribing medicine, it, it is a given that I believe what you're telling me. But there's so much power in those words, I'm definitely taking that back. Is there Anything you want to leave our listeners with, Anna, you were amazing. This is, I'm so happy that you are better and doing all of the things and out there tearing your ACL. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you don't do that again, but I'm kind of glad you did in a weird way. Um, So is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? Maybe just sort of the cliche of, I believe you. Like it's, it's, it may feel implied, but I'd been so trained that I didn't think anyone would believe me when I said ACL surgery hurt. So it's mm-hmm. like, if, you, if you're falling in that boat, that if you don't think that a doctor will believe you, that you're in pain or that you're short of breath all the time, or that something is just wrong somehow, like find a new doctor, first yeah. of all. <laughs> find one that you have faith will listen to you um, and just try and remember everything so that you can talk to them. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep, keeping the faith is definitely difficult when you're dealing with that. Excellent. Excellent advice. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, to all of our listeners, if you have a story like Hannah's or uh, any story about a medical conversation that went badly or went well, I want to hear from you. Please email me, christine at christinemeyermd.com. Hannah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. 
Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. care.